Hi folks, Michael Howie here. Last week's Lush giveaway was won by Amanda T. right here in Hamilton, whose gift bag of goodies is now on its way. And after such a great response, I've decided to do one more. This time, all you need to do is subscribe to the Fur Bears weekly e-newsletter and opt in to get updates on Defender Radio. Visit thefurbears.com slash updates and enter your information. It's as easy as that. I'll use our system to randomly draw a winner from those who have already signed up and those who sign up over this week to give everyone a fair shot at winning another basket of goodies from our friends at Lush Cosmetics. Again, just visit thefurbears.com slash updates, opt in for e-news and Defender Radio updates, and you'll have your chance to win. This week's episode is supported by The Hardy Hooligan. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of September 25th, 2017, and this is Michael Howey welcoming you to episode 447 of Defender Radio. Extreme weather events and natural disasters have wreaked havoc across the southern United States, Mexico, and the Caribbean. In the U.S. Virgin Islands, hurricanes have torn apart communities, destroyed infrastructure, and created crises of significant scope for people who call the islands home. But it isn't only the people who are suffering. Community animals like cats, dogs, domestic livestock, and working animals who depend on humans can suffer greatly through these incidents, despite the best efforts of their owners or families. Even wildlife, who are often adept at managing through such scenarios, need a helping hand with injuries or accessing resources and shelter. But they have hope in the form of emergency response teams from the International Fund for Animal Welfare, or IFA. According to their website, IFA leads, funds, and provides assistance to animal rescue groups to assess disaster situations, formulate plans, and take action. They also provide food, equipment, medical supplies, and emergency expertise to help rescue, provide care, and when safe to do so, reunify pets with their families and or return the wildlife to the wild. Defender Radio was fortunate to be joined by Rez Krebs, a communication expert for IFA, who deployed with emergency response teams to the U.S. Virgin Islands earlier this month. In an interview with Defender Radio, between planning sessions and its next deployment, Rez talked about the emergency response program, what it was like seeing the devastation to the islands and the communities, and how we can all help in recovery efforts and preparedness for the people and the animals. First, a message from this month's supporters. When I'm looking for a meal that satisfies my hunger and my ethics, I head to the Hardy Hooligan here in Hamilton. They have incredible vegan versions of egg salad, chicken salad, and tuna salad daily, as well as savory pies, including my favorite, shepherd's pie pasty. They have amazing desserts and even locally roasted coffee in biodegradable cups. The Hardy Hooligan is definitely food worth rioting for. Check them out at 368 Main West in Hamilton, right by Lock Street, or find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at thehardyhooligan.com. Let's begin with uh, a bit of understanding about what uh, IFA does uh, in terms of 
disaster response? Because this is something I, I've had people on talking about um, the wildfires, and I've had people talking on about just general safety uh, when you're out hiking and stuff. But this is sort of a little different than either of those uh, types of things. So what is the program? So the International Fund for Animal Welfare's uh, modus operandi is to rescue and protect animals around the world. Um, obviously, when a natural disaster hits, animals are also affected. Not just um, community animals, dogs and cats and livestock, but also wildlife. Uh, and our we have, we have two sets of um, program teams dedicated to rescuing animals. One of them is wildlife uh, rescue and one is disaster response. And uh, the disaster response team is the one that I am now, um, I had the communications for uh, since community animals, it was, it was brought under community animals recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually, we do a number of things. Uh, our own teams respond to emergencies around the world, but we also work with local partners to set up emergency response networks and we have emergency response networks on, I believe, five continents. Wow. Uh, that, and you know, in regions, really, it's you know, we have we have a number of different emergency response networks in Asia, for instance, uh, and they are able to then uh, respond to disasters at a moment's notice in the region where they're located. Um, we also, I mean, this is you know, disaster response isn't just about the immediate need post-disaster we also work with policymakers, decision makers in countries that are that are affected by natural disasters and prone to being affected by natural disasters to ensure that they have the policies in place uh, and are able to uh, do do the do their best to respond to the natural disasters that are you know imminent and frankly increasing given climate change and that is something that we definitely saw uh, this summer and we're still seeing now moving into fall is just an extraordinary number of uh, hurricanes in the uh, the southern United States and into, uh, I guess, sort of that uh, Central America region. Um, and while we could spend a great deal of time talking about what caused all of those, um, I don't think either of us have any expertise in it, so it would be rather entertaining, but... Um, what we can talk about is what happened next. So I, I know you weren't involved. You you're, you had teams in Houston for Har- Hurricane Harvey. Yeah. Um, and then you went down to St. John or St. Thomas. I keep getting these. I actually wrote this down. And I wrote down St. John and St. Thomas. So that really didn't help me. Um, I was on both islands. But okay. I, I, was, I was responsible for uh, communications coming from St. John. Obviously, uh, you know, International Fund for Animal Welfare wants to get our, our supporters love to hear about what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was responsible for the communications uh, going to our supporters, but I was also coordinating a lot of, you know, kind of internal communications. Here's where we are. Here's what we're doing and ensuring that everybody at the headquarters was kept up to speed with what we we're, uh, you know, our progress, making sure that everyone was safe, et cetera. Let's talk a bit about your experience. Um, now you're a Toronto guy, unfortunately. Um, uh, and for those who don't know, I'm sure most of them do. I am in Hamilton, which is the superior city. Um, and you ended up in the U S Virgin Island of St. John's and St. Thomas. So how did you go from Toronto to ending up in those, uh, on those two islands? And what was the process like? So it was funny. Um, international fund for animal welfare has this international operations center on Cape Cod, uh, in Massachusetts, 
and I was scheduled to go down there for disaster response training uh, the week of September 11th. And, you know, I, the, the week previous to this, I had been on vacation and uh, here I am, like I get back from vacation. I'm ready to go down for disaster response training, totally oblivious to the news. And then I get down there and they start talking about, well, this training may end up being more of a deployment because mm. there are, you know, we had had Harvey uh, and Irma had just rolled through and we were trying to coordinate with local authorities in a number of Caribbean islands uh, to determine what the need was and where we could be sending our resources. Uh, so I got about two and a half days of the quickest disaster response training <laughs> <laughs> imaginable. And then we ended up shipping out, taking a commercial flight to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then escorting 2,000 pounds of dog food on a Coast Guard cutter to the island of St. Thomas. We actually, that, that trip was pretty incredible. You kind of understand the, the might of the U.S. military. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, they're, they're, uh, they're quite, quite efficient when you give them uh, something to do. Um, like <laughs> transporting 2000 pounds of dog food. They can, yeah. they can certainly daisy chain that thing here, there and everywhere. Uh, <laughs> but it, you know, it was interesting. We needed to get onto St. John with this dog food. That was where it was needed most. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, like we, we ended up near St. John at around midnight and our team lead and about six heavily armed coast guard uh, sailors shot out the back of our cutter on a Zodiac uh, and then disappeared into the night went black and wow. approached the, the port there uh, to, to see what was going on because they had been shot at previously by looters, I guess on that Island. Uh, so they went, they went in there dark and they were trying to secure us at, you know, a place to stay that evening with the dog food. Um, unfortunately the, the National Park Service, I guess, is the main um, governmental representation on the island of St. John. They weren't around at night. There's a curfew, so no one was on the streets. Um, and so they decided that we should stay on board. They had to patrol the region being the only, uh, the only American military presence in the area at the time. So it wasn't until 11 a.m. the next morning that we were able to dock at St. Thomas, um, and then we began uh, unloading this food into this pickup truck that had, been, that had been arranged for us so that we could transport it somewhere and then figure out what we were going to do with it. It was hilarious because we, there was another boat docked at the Coast Guard pier mm -hmm. and it had like, it was like a pleasure craft, right? Yeah. And it had this, the name on the back was Sam and it had these, uh, these paw prints on it. And immediately our team lead and the captain of the ship like he was curious, they start chatting and he's a, uh, he was an engineering contractor from Puerto Rico set in to assess the damage to the buildings uh, in a bunch of the U S Virgin islands. He's an animal lover. He named his dog, his, his boat after his uh, deceased dog, Sam yeah. a golden retriever. Yeah. And he immediately offered assistance. So we just, those, those coast guard guys just like, unloaded the, the food off that truck and back into into this boat and uh, an hour later uh we had split into two teams um 
an hour later, the team from St. John was aboard this boat with this great guy, Ivan, uh, taking us to St. John. It was, it was incredible. And then when we got there, I mean, there were, there were waiting volunteers to once again unload this 2000 miles of dog food. And it happened in a matter of minutes when you have, you know, 20 people on a daisy chain, it just, it just gets, you know, it gets easy when people help. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of carrying in a 20 pound dog of uh, a 20 pound bag of dog food from my car to my house. Um, and it's a struggle. So I can imagine when you've got 2000 pounds, uh, it, it's pretty impressive to see it moving, um, yeah, at that kind yeah, of speed. Real. Uh, yeah. now before we talk a little bit more about sort of your experience, once you were on the Island, can we talk about the Island? Because uh, when we were talking about this beforehand, uh, I was surprised at how little, when I actually tried to think about it, how little I actually know about the U.S. Virgin Islands. Because And what we're seeing on television with a lot of the response is in the continental U.S. So we're talking Florida, uh, Louisiana, Texas, etc. Uh, what are yeah. the islands like? Well, they're, uh, I guess, they, they're called the West Indies. Um, they're, they're Caribbean islands that have... Uh, historically been a place where there were sugar plantations and that were being, that were farmed by slaves. Mm-hmm. And so the main population of these islands are, uh, the, the, uh, the, you know, the people who came from slaves, right. Um, so they have their own Caribbean kind of culture, uh, and then kind of added to that mix are U S citizens who, are there as kind of quote expats or immigrants. Um, the, uh, there is, it is a U.S. territory like Puerto Rico or Guam, for instance. So everyone that's born there are citizens of the United States, but, uh, the, uh, they can't, they don't actually, they can't vote for the president and they, they elect people to go and like kind of observe Congress, Hmm. but they don't get to vote. It's kind of a s- strange kind of political situation there. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have enough background to really get into that. Uh, I'd that like you to speculate that. entirely about their culture and history. <laughs> uh, you know, these are, these are tropical islands. Um, as I said, up until very recently, sugar was their main uh, source of income and now it's tourism. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, so, you know, think of the Caribbean, beautiful, sparkling blue ocean and these green, uh, verdant islands. Um, well, now they're brown because that Hurricane Irma tore every branch off every tree on that island. Mm-hmm. Uh, the place was just totally destroyed, just like crumpled, uh, crumpled corrugated metal sheeting. Like, you know, when you, when you scrunch up a ball of aluminum foil, that's what it looked like uh just flattened houses and the stuff that that's that was actually that stuck around is are the old sugar plantations and other buildings that are constructed in a similar style with stone or concrete mm-hmm. which everything else everything else is gone you know it's it's costly right it costs a lot of money yeah. to, build, to build stuff like that so power poles were just like broken matchsticks uh just everywhere falling everywhere and that's you know we were there a week after the thing had hit um it took i think four or five days for any of the military presence to get there 
they had no power and no communications going going out. So there was no way for the American uh, authorities to understand what was going on. Um, but, you know, there's also the fact that they, they felt quite abandoned by their government. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I was hearing from people because, you know, Houston and Florida were receiving vast amounts of support. But uh, because of their more remote nature and I guess the fact that they're a territory, it took longer for the American government to mobilize and help those people. It must be frustrating for them too. And uh, one thing you'd mentioned is that the, the communications were out. And when you say that, it's not like here where, oh, the power's out, I'll hop on my cell phone and call, you know, for me, Kojiko or Rogers or whomever. Uh, when the communications were out, they were like, you didn't get reception in most places, right? Like, what what was that like? Exactly. No, I mean, it, it's funny. I read a story about this guy who, who was able to just based on the kind of... Um, miracle of geography get signal from some other island on his phone and he ended up ferrying news back and forth to, to, from strangers you know um people who had family on those islands were were facebooking him and he was going looking for people and and at the time when i was there about a week later some volunteers had started setting up wi-fi hotspots. they were they worked sometimes uh, I was able to, it's, it was really funny. There was across the street from the only grocery store that had anything left uh, was an unfinished building. And that's where you could receive cell service from St. Croix, which is, which is an Island that wasn't really hit by Irma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we would all like people all times of the day, because there was still a curfew in, in effect from, you know, six till six, um, You'd find people up at the top of this unfinished building. I went up there whenever I needed to report to uh, headquarters, you know, or make a call or, you know, send in pictures. Uh, so it was just kind of like crowded around the top of this building, holding that's my cell phones in the air, trying to get, trying to get service. But I mean, that's frankly, that's a lot better than a lot of these uh, islands are faring. Like Dominica has just been totally crushed, right? Um, they don't even, I don't think they even have you know, spotty cell phone service, for instance. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I was, it was actually fortunate to have that one spot where I could go and like get reliable, you know, more or less reliable coverage. It does put into perspective. Uh, I, I was driving home uh, from the Ontario Turtle Conservation Center a few weeks ago, and that was an ep- uh, two episodes ago, I believe, of the podcast. Uh, we had that interview up and I was talking with the Vancouver office and uh, in Peterborough, there's a lot of rolling hills. So I'd go down a hill and my cell would cut out and come back up the hill and it would cut back in, uh, which mm-hmm. is frustrating, but it kind of does put that in perspective, like how annoyed I was with that, uh, that I'd have these <laughs> temporary, like, oh, I can't hear you. Oh, now I can hear you moments. Like you, you had to climb a building, uh, unfinished <laughs> building to be able to say, hey, we're still alive. Yeah. Um, like that's, yeah, it, it exactly. does put a lot of that into perspective. And of course you were there to, uh, do an assessment for animals to, f- to help animals. So let's talk about the, uh, what is the, the range of animals on these islands? Um, and I know it is much different and I think it's important that we note that the culture is also much different, uh, yeah. as we talk about this. So what, what would you normally see if we weren't talking, uh, disaster relief, what would the landscape be like for animals? Well, I mean, there are there are plenty of dogs and cats, right? Some of them are roaming. Um, there are two different cultures on that island, right? You're looking at, like I said, uh, West Indian culture, uh, who generally have a more uh, laissez-faire 
attitude towards their animals. They let them roam. Uh, they don't have the same, uh, let's say, uh, preoccupation with veterinary care that we might, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have the American population that frankly treats their animals like people treat their animals here. You still get people who are negligent. You get people who are good owners. Uh, they have had an excellently uh, run shelter there that uh, was that ended up having responsibility for uh, animal control on the island. So, you know, if someone was negligent to their animal or cruel, that uh, shelter would bring the police in and they would have their animal uh, taken away. Um, they also have a lot of wild donkeys on this <laughs> island. Uh, it was super interesting seeing these wild donkeys and they, they fared quite well. It's not like these islands are strangers to catastrophe, although the last serious one happened in, I believe, 1989. Um, these, these donkeys, somehow they knew what to do because the, you know, the majority of them survived. Uh, and through, you know, being able to kind of scour through the underbrush, they're, they're still able to find forage. Uh, like I say, about a week after the, uh, a week after the disaster, they were looking pretty well. Uh, we, when we were doing our, our island wide assessment, we encountered a number of donkeys who, uh, wild donkeys who were, they were doing okay. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, you know, you see, you'll see them maybe limping or, uh, and that's not always a recent injury when they're injured uh, and they're in a place where people can't um, necessarily treat them. That injury, uh, whether it's a broken leg or, or a, a, a lesion or something, it heals on its own. And then it heals as it, you know, as it would in the wild. Um, there were also, you know, a lot of chickens that no longer had shelter, unfortunately. Um, however, uh, because of the nature of, well, chicken is a scavenger, really, uh, you know, insects and other, uh, food sources were abundant. So they were doing okay. Um, there were a couple of animals that we encountered that required veterinary assistance and we, we communicated with the veterinarians on the island so that they knew what was required. Um, but mostly we were there to do like an assessment is about what are the resources that are available on the island. What are the community animals? We were there to do community, to do community animals. We, were, we did not have a mandate for wildlife. Um, but what are the needs of the community animals like right now? Uh, what kind of resources does the government need to bring in? And then we also will be marshalling that, uh, that relief, right? The, the, the immediate assessment is what you do before you start providing relief. Although, of course, if we had encountered animals that were in, in need of first aid, for instance, we would be giving that. Um, so the 2000 of the dog food was part of what we had already established as, as their need. Uh, we also have secured, they needed cat litter at the shelter, for instance. So we've secured them cat litter uh, and crates for evacuating animals out. And the crates and the cat litter on our, on our first trip actually got lost. And when we were being evacuated back out because of Maria, uh, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, dictated that every disaster responder had to, had to leave. Mm -hmm. So we were forced to leave. Uh, and actually, when we were back in San Juan, about to get back onto the continental United States, we found our cat litter and crates at the, at the airport. <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting. So that stuff has since made its way back to uh, St. John. 
And, you know, really it was about getting electricity back, procuring generators, and then restocking their supply of vaccines. Um, again, food, uh, cat litter, and crates. So that was in the, in the immediate response. That's what they required. It's, it's remarkable how you wouldn't think of some of that stuff. The dog food, it's okay. Yeah. Dog food makes sense, but kitten litter, like for yeah. a shot, like that just, it would not. And of, of course I'm a dog person, but at the same time, that's, you know, you're thinking food and emergency supplies. You're not yeah. thinking cat litter. You're not thinking, uh, uh vaccines, um, all of the things that they need on an ongoing basis anyway, that they've simply probably, you know, they could have been lost to the storm or their supply chain has been completely interrupted. Yeah, they were lucky because they still had, like the grocery store, for instance, was still in service. A lot of times in, during a disaster, you also need to bring like cleaning supplies because mm. sanitation is like a huge priority uh, for, uh, you know, for post-disaster sheltering of animals. Um, and you need to keep those crates clean. Sometimes, you know, if, if they were really well managed on St. John, the, uh, the guy Ryan there, um, Ryan was a shelter manager at Animal Care Center St. John and Heidi Stout, Ryan Moore and he- Heidi Stout was a veterinarian who had a kenneling operation. Between the two of them, they were able to uh, shelter all the animals that required post-storm shelter and keep all the animals that they had in care that were, you know, to be adopted out before the shelter hit, before the storm hit. So, uh, like they, they did exceptionally well. Obviously they were, they were, um, under a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, man, I was so impressed at the end, you know, Ryan was using like dirt for cat litter, but he was keeping that, that cat litter changed. He yep. had a stockpile of the cleaning supplies that he needed. Shelter didn't even smell bad, you know? Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was really impressive uh, to see them really step up and, and work hard and keep those animals safe. And that's, that's just nothing but compassion and dedication right there. Yeah. Just making yeah. something out of nothing and doing what has to be done. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk a bit about, um, there, there was two components of this that kind of go together in my brain. We were talking about when you were evacuated for Maria and right before the evacuation, I think that the, the, her, as Maria was coming in, it was listed as category two, which as hurricanes go is not that significant. I mean, it's still a hurricane, but it's not the, the worst of the worst kind. Um, and then as soon as it hit the shores, it jumped to a category five, yeah, uh, which is the literal end of the world type hurricanes. I don't think they get worse than that. Um, what, I, how, what is in your mind as you're doing this? It's like, you're, you're there to help animals and they say, you got to leave, you got to leave. It's like, fine, fine. We'll get on the boat. And then all of a sudden it like, you very well may not have survived staying. It was interesting. Um, interesting is not the word I would have used, but okay. It was interesting. It, that decision was forced on us. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that if we had been given the choice, we would have stayed. Yeah. Um, especially considering, like you said, what we had known was, okay, category two, we were very uh, fortunate to have had a woman named Amanda Kennedy from, she's actually the head of uh, city of Boston animal control. She volunteered with us. She had lived on St. John for a number of years and knew the island very well, knew people there. And she said, you know, I know a guy who uh, has a great, uh, a great place. It's what they call hardened, 
Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 you know, it's been through a few storms, it's made of durable materials. Um, and he, you know, she was, she was basically gearing up for, to shelter the, the five person team there during the storm. Um, you know, it's actually a good thing that FEMA made the evacuation mandatory because frankly, if they hadn't, there probably would have been a number of disaster responders themselves had to be rescued. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was, uh, that was a good decision and the the logistics of that evacuation were handled very professionally even if we had to do a lot of waiting at various airports but <laughs> yeah um, that's that's the nature of moving that many people and things uh, yeah, across a continent yeah. um yeah. and that's i uh uh while it may not be popular with our <laughs> listeners i have read um uh, the uh, General Schwarzkopf's autobiography a couple of times, coming from a, oh, yeah. a family of military historian fanatics, and um, talking about moving all of the the American military into um, Saudi Arabia and uh, Kuwait for uh, 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 Gulf Storm. Um, oh, what was it? Operation um, Shield and Storm in uh, the early nineties, and just the the weight of responsibility of like you have to account for everything that goes and and just sort of that to me that kind of gives a bit of a picture too of the scale of moving all of these people and that's within the military complex so when you start adding on teams of volunteers and people who don't have that military training or aren't part of that chain of command i imagine it gets very chaotic um so it is impressive that they're able to do this safely so to speak yeah, no, it was it was extremely impressive. The Americans, uh, <laughs> I had a friend, you know, the Americans get excited about this kind of thing and they bring everything, right? So mm-hmm. they had helicopters and they had gunships and they had they had all this stuff, all this gear, huge, huge Ospreys, you know, those those uh, they're kind of a mix of a plane and a helicopter, these rotating wings. Yep, yep. And just coming in, in and out of this, you know, C-130s, huge planes coming in and out of the St. Thomas uh, Airport. Um, and uh, and they handled it extremely well. They, they lost their cat litter, though. So I was a little <laughs> bit pissed. Uh, right? So well, I like it, though, you're yeah. a little bit pissed that you lost the cat litter. Cat litter? Yeah, uh, right. Uh, I mean, it was that... It was important to us, but I guess, you know, I'm not sure how that decision gets made or whether it was an oversight. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, well, and again, that's, you know, you're talking a uh, uh, a panel of gear, effectively, out of how many millions of panels of gear that are being yeah, exactly. around. But you yeah. found it. So at the end of the day, it kind of works yeah, out. Yeah, um, one of the things, too, that is has come up a lot as we've talked about disaster response is the... Um, Pictures we see, and some of these cases are very, very accurate. Some of them, I think, are not accurate. But when we say uh, uh, we see, you know, a dog tied up, and it's that dog's been left behind, um, and the owner tied him to a tree, and we know this has happened. So we're going to start with yeah. that. We know that happens. It's uh, uh, horrendously cruel to do, in my opinion. Um, when you know the storm is coming, you tie the dog up and you leave. Yeah. However. That's not always what the case is. And when we were looking at pictures uh, that you had supplied me, uh, there was one picture of a dog tied up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be the episode art. I, have, I We don't know yet. We're still going over that. But when I saw that, I said, first thing in my head, and this, this is, of course, because this is what I have been trained to do by our media to say, well, that must be this. And that wasn't the story at all. I mean, it's, just, it's a nice looking dog tied to a post in front of a house. 
And yeah. while the immediate response is, this is a dog who's been left behind, it's cruel, that wasn't what was happening. And this, I think, is probably one of the interesting components of what your assessment revealed is sort of what you may initially think versus what you then find out when you start asking questions. So could you share that story? Yeah, of course. And this is, you know, International Club for Animal Welfare works around the world, mm -hmm. um, improving the welfare of community animals. And we see a lot of different ways of interacting with animals. Um, in this case, in this, you know, and, and we, we do see, you do hear about dogs being tied to trees or tied in front of a house and, and then being found or dying after, after a yep. disaster. And it's not always because the owner is cruel and just leaving them there. It may be because the owner tied them there, um, was going to run to the store to get something and then come back and get them. And then the authorities closed the road, right? Um, there are lots of different reasons for, uh, for animals to be found in those situations. In this case, uh, there's a lot of looting happening post disasters, any disaster anywhere, right? You're going to have that like tiny minority of people that make it terrible for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, and this dog was, had been tied to the wreck of his house, essentially to guard it, um, to guard the, the, what was remaining of this person's uh, property. He was on about a 20 or 30 foot lead. Uh, super well behaved, but wouldn't let us anywhere near the house or him. Yeah. Uh, so we talked to some neighbors and and found out that you know he's yeah he's been there for a couple of days. They know the owner. He's getting fed. He's getting water. Uh, and you know the owner while he's off doing his business will leave him there to ensure that people don't come and mess with his stuff. So uh, on the on the face of it, it looks like he's been abandoned. But as it turns out, he's actually being very well cared for and doing a job during the day. He's doing his job. Yeah. And that's, you know, people around the world, that's often why they keep dogs, right? That's why we, our ancestors kept dogs for security. And, uh, you know, it's not always the best conditions. There are all, often ways to improve the conditions of those animals. But, you know, keeping a dog tied to, in front of your house so that people don't ransack it, uh, that's pretty legitimate in my eyes. Well, and I think the other thing to consider too is, and, and this is something else we had talked about, is the level of poverty um, throughout these islands. While there are obviously some very wealthy people, the the standards of living are not what we would expect, even just that short hop away to Florida. Um, and that translates to the entire culture. And that's sort of what we were saying earlier, sort of the culture is very, very different. Um, and I think when, and that must be difficult as an animal lover like yourself or anyone else to go into another place and see the way animals are kept or treated or the way a community views them and not try and apply our standards and our beliefs or morals. Uh, is that part of the training that you get? Well, it's kind of just a requirement of the job um, mm. because yeah, so poverty will often means that people don't have access to basic medication for their animals. But poverty can also mean that they haven't had the education required to know that, oh, if my dog has mange, I can treat it very easily because mange medication isn't actually that expensive, right? Mm -hmm. And that there are options to, but, you know, my dog keeps having puppies. Well, there are options for you, right? And it's not necessarily we often think that it's cruelty or negligence we are, we you know our our human instinct is to lay blame it's often simply lack of information uh 
lack of options. So I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, 99% of the people that I meet uh, love their animals and uh, a little bit of information can go a long way. So, hey, you know, your animal there, he's, he's, his ears are full of ticks. And, he, and they say, well, yeah, you know, I pick them off when I can. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a really easy to apply medication that we can give you that will prevent your dog from having ticks and keep their skin a lot healthier. And then they're always very grateful. Yeah, and I think that's the, the, the beautiful part of it, um, of what this team is. And sort of as we were talking about it before we did the show, before we started this interview, is understanding it's not just going in and saying, here's a bunch of stuff and turning away and walking away. It's preparing these communities to manage themselves quite frequently. Um, yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's, that's that's very impressive to me and very nice to see that that's part of it. So it's not a, we're coming in to save the day, now see you later. It was, it was great um, being there, knowing, like people see you and they thank you. But one guy in particular, it was really interesting. He said, I heard you guys were coming. I was so thankful because you're the ones that stay. And uh, having that reputation in the kind of animal world is, is pretty awesome because we are the ones that stay. Other organizations often will send a communications person in mm-hmm. and that's it. Uh, we're there to ensure that the needs of the animals are being met. And then once the disaster is over to ensure that the, like that the governments and decision-making authorities have the resources that they require to make like the next disaster that much easier to manage and to ensure that people are prepared for the, that next disaster. So, I mean, yeah, this is like actually, you know, the disaster response team is often, um, they often use their disaster response as a way to basically make relationships with people uh, so that we can then, you know, give the consult consultations that are required to get their policies and their uh, disaster preparedness up to snuff. Obviously an important step, uh, you know, you're dealing with communities that I, I think it's interesting you had pointed out that they last time they had a category, a hurricane of this size was, what did you say, 1989? Like, yeah. That's, that's a generation or two of leadership, um, of never having, never having to have dealt with this before. So yeah. even if policies were put in place in 1989, you've had turnover of staff, of elected officials, of people living there. Um, and all of a sudden you get a community of people who may just not have the information. They may not have the, the resources, the access to resources to be able to manage it. So being able to go in and say, you know, A, here's some help and B, here's how we can work together to make sure you're ready, um, for the next one, I think is, is a very valuable tool to be able to offer. One thing that we, we stepped over that I really did want to talk about, um, was the, uh, the shelter situation. Um, and I'm not talking about the, well, I'm talking about the animal shelter, but I'm also talking about the people shelter. This is something that we were talking about. And while I know a lot of different agencies have different rules and we're not going to make any blanket statements about that. What surprised me is if I showed up to some of these shelters with my dog or my dogs as the case is, they may say no. Uh, and that, that's something I think a lot of people may not realize. What was your experience like in, in just sort of the differences between the types of sheltering that were taking place inclusive of pets? So on St. John, uh, so the American Red Cross, its general policy is that it does not accept pets at shelters. Mm-hmm. They're the, they are the largest people sheltering 
organization in the United States post-disaster, and their shelters will not accept animals except for service animals. Um, I'm not sure what the Canadian Red Cross uh, policy is, but I'm I'm going to guess that it's likely to be the same. Uh, so, however, on St. John, their local representative actually went against that policy, and I was told that you know that they have the capacity to do that. They're allowed, like local decision making can can trump the the general policy, and they allowed people to shelter with their animals, which was which was pretty heartwarming. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, for anybody who anybody who's got an animal, anybody who has uh, companion animals, needs to be prepared to not have access to an emergency shelter during these situations. Uh, and needs to figure out in advance, well in advance, what they're going to do if the time comes for them to be evacuated and how they're going to handle their animals. Um, uh, our, my organization, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, does have a kind of booklet that people can download to, to prepare for that. And one of, that, one of those important pieces of preparation is figuring out within, you know, a good wide swath, you know, 100 kilometer um, area where the hotels are that accept animals mm. because you can't, you can't expect to stay in a human shelter with your animal. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing. And I would like to see those policies changed. Uh, it would re probably require a partnership with an organization like ours, but, uh, yeah, well, I, that... I can understand. Uh, I, don't agree with it, but I can understand from an organizational standpoint saying we've got to deal with people. We don't have time for dogs. Um, yeah. I, I can sort of empathize with that decision-making process. Again, I disagree with it, but, um, you know, it's, it's certainly something I would hope to see change as well. And hopefully IFA can uh, have a role to play in that. And I would think that a lot of humane societies and shelters would also be very happy to sort of help in explaining the benefits of this. Um and uh, making sure everything's safe. Um, That's what we see in a lot of disaster responses is shelters stepping up and, and uh, boarding animals. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we saw in uh, in the wildfires in Fort McMurray last year. Yep. Um, but again, you know, you know, animals, our animals are our family. And during a time of such terrible stress, I think that having your animal with you can be a remarkable uh, salve for your emotional stress and frankly having the change in that policy would improve the mental well-being of people who are sheltered there not only the people who have the animals but people around them there are obviously other considerations if an animal is not social if an animal is needs to have a model mm -hmm. um, obviously sanitary issues allergy issues but when you're talking about you know, for instance, what, what I saw was an elementary school in St. John that had, been, that had been converted into a shelter. That was a two-story structure that had offices, that had um, gymnasiums, that had classrooms, right? And it would be, in this case, it was very easy for them to uh, put people with animals in different uh, areas of the building so yeah. that people who were maybe had a fear of animals, had an allergy, didn't want to be around them for whatever reason, didn't have to be. It's definitely something that I would think in a lot of cases is doable if you're prepared to work for it. And I'd also, and I don't know, 
I know that for me, if I was a few blocks from my house and the police said we're evacuating, you can't go home, I would probably make a lot of really bad decisions to get home. Yeah, um, definitely. So I think that's also something that needs to be considered. Um, and that opens up that whole problem again of keeping the rescuers safe. Um, so uh, anyway, the the last thing I wanted to ask about is that preparation. This is something um, I don't think any people tend to think about on a day-to-day basis. What am I going to do if this happens or if that happens? Um, and I think IFA does have some great resources on this. Uh, what, where can people find this? What can they do? And as a follow-up, what can they do in helping the relief in the hurricane-stricken uh, areas right now? Okay, so the first answer to your question, uh, we do have a great little booklet that you can download. I'm not going to share the URL. It's way too long. But if you just search IFA, I-F-A-W, Tips for Keeping Your Pets Safe During Disasters, you'll find it. It'll be right, easy. We'll link to that to you on the show notes. Yeah, very uh, great. Excellent. I'll, I'll, you, I'll send you the link so that you can, you can link to it there. Um, the, the main point here is that uh, you and your family should be prepared for disasters, frankly. Mm. And we should all take this on as a responsibility. Um, for humans, there are a set of needs. You need, you need uh, long-term bottled water, bottled water that will, that will stay good for a certain amount of time. That's usually marked on the bottle. You need obviously uh, some. You need flashlights with multiple batteries. You need a, a, ba- a radio that can maybe hand crank, and you need uh, some some uh, easy to eat meals. Uh, you know, Cliff bars or whatever else. I'm not gonna. You know, that's your basic human stuff. Go to the Red Cross website for that. For 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 your animals, uh, you the best way to do it is to get yourself um, a carrier that will fit your animal. Mm-hmm. And then get yourself a bag that fits inside that carrier just so you can kind of be ready like at a moment's notice. Yeah. That bag needs to contain copy of the veterinary records, uh, any licenses uh, that you need, uh, for instance, rabies. Keep that in a plastic bag. Um, for identification, in case your animal gets loose during the disaster, a, a good idea is to have a picture of your pet uh, and better yet, a picture of your pet with you. And that, that is a way to guarantee keep to shelters, for instance, who find your animal, that you're the owner. That's a good uh, idea, yeah. Yeah, so uh, something that can comfort them, like a toy or a, a, a chew toy. Um, you should have a, fet, a pet first aid kit. Those are usually available at either pet stores or veterinarians. Flashlight, um, any medication that your, that your dog or cat or pet needs, an extra leash, collar, harness if you use them, um, poop bags, a two-week supply of food, and a two-week supply of water, uh, and anything that you need to get at that food, whether it be a can opener or scissors, whatever. Um, metal food and water dishes, uh, some old towels for cleaning up, any extra bedding material they might need. Uh, you'll want, like, some handy wipes, some... some um, uh, like uh, sanitary napkins, not sanitary napkins. Um, baby wipes. Baby wipes. Yeah. Because if they step in poop, or if you're, you know, if you're in a flood, uh, you're you're susceptible to a wide variety of diseases, and you want to be able to clean their their paws, and, and so they're not licking their paws when they're contaminated. Um, always great to have a dog tie out. Uh, if you you know if you end up at a 
a rest area or something and you're sleeping in your car, this happens. You can, you can put your dog on, you know, those corkscrew things that go into the ground and a 30 foot lead or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, treats and, and then any, uh, any phone numbers that you need to, to, to have handy, like the phone number of your veterinarian, um, and a list, try to keep a list, like I say, within like 100 kilometers around your house of hotels that uh, accept pets and their phone number and, and whereabouts. Awesome. And for people who want to help out with the hurricane relief, um, this is something that I know comes up uh, pretty much every time there is sort of a, a major disaster. There are good ways to help and bad ways to help. And the bad ways to help are rather numerous. And this is also a very specific instance that we're going to be talking about. So what are some of the ways people can, if they've been watching the news and they want to help, they want to help IFA, they want to help other organizations who are helping animals, what are the best things they can do? The best thing you can do is donate. It's not just self-interest here. It's because we know what we need. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, if you have family that are in the area and you have a means of sending them what what they want, do so. But the best way to help, like, man, we're sitting here. I'm going back to the Caribbean. We have, I think, three teams going to the U.S. Virgin Islands. We have a team going to uh, the French West Indies. We have uh, a team in right now. They've deployed to the villages around Mexico City that aren't that yeah. are basically unreachable. We have this earthquake that just happened. We have people in Bali that are preparing because that volcano is going to happen any day. It's it's crazy right now. Uh, International Fund for Animal Welfare is a nonprofit in Canada, here in the United States. Uh, we we require funds to do this work, uh, and it would be we would be very grateful if people were able to donate to this uh, cause. Um, if you have other uh, animal wildlife organizations that you prefer to donate to, donate to them. If people are doing disaster response, donate to them. We have emergency response networks around the world. We have like the people that I went with, they're, they're, you know, ex firefighters. Like I said, the, the head of animal control at the city of Boston, like they know what they're doing to rescue animals. They know what they're doing to handle animals that we have veterinarians on our, on our teams. You know, we're, we're there to do a serious job and we can only do that job if we get the support from, from people that love animals. So to find out more about IFA's emergency response teams, visit IFA.org. Their pet safety guide is available on this week's Defender Radio blog with show notes at thefurbears.com. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks for listening, and remember to sign up and opt in for e-news and Defender Radio updates at thefurbears.com updates for your chance to win a gift bundle from Lush Cosmetics. Contest closes Monday, October 2nd at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, so sign up now to make sure you're in the draw. Please also take a moment to subscribe to Defender Radio on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your preferred podcasting app to get notified of new episodes. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.